You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. So I like uh, Clint's uh, idea this morning that as we worship together corporately, that we would keep our eyes open, right, so we can engage each other as we're singing. And I thought, wouldn't that be a good thing to implement while I'm preaching as well? (laughs) Everybody keep your eyes open. No private worship going on during the sermon today, if you know what I'm saying, all right? So everybody keep your eyes open. And if you're closing your eyes, I'm going to call you out and be like, hey, no private worship at church today. Only eyes open today. Um, Just kidding. If you worked overnight, take a nap. I will not be offended. If you didn't work overnight, take a nap as well. That's fine. You're like, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good time. Uh, so when you go to a family reunion, there are really three characteristics or th- three things that you can guarantee that will happen at a family reunion. The first thing that you can guarantee that will happen at a family reunion is a fight right? Like at some level, at a family reunion, somebody's going to bring up something that's going to cause there to be some tension and some conflict at the family reunion, whether it's politics or it's a past hurt that Aunt Berdethel's holding on to, you know what I'm saying, and just can't quite get over. There's going to be some kind of fight that's going to happen at a family reunion. Then at a family reunion, you're going to have food, right? There's always going to be a meal. I've never seen a really or heard of a family reunion where you get together and you don't have food involved. Now, sometimes we know this, the food is sketchy a little bit. At times, the potato salad and the coleslaw and the three bean salad, those things can get a little bit iffy, like how long have those been there and sitting in the fridge, you know, but meal, there's always going to be food involved in the family reunion. And then there's always going to be advice given. So you're going to have, you're going to have a fight, you're going to have food or meal, and then you're going to have advice given, right? Uncle Joe is going to watch you with your kids and be like, man, that guy needs some help, right? And he's going to take him aside and say, listen, you know, you probably should be a little bit more patient. I know you're frustrated and here's what me and Joe and Joanne, I don't know, did together and this is, it worked out well and right? Like there's gonna be advice given, not only from the older to the younger generation, but the younger generation to the older, let's be honest, because there's gonna be a family picture time and you know, they're gonna pull out their phones and they're gonna be taking selfies rather than taking, and so they're gonna have to ask the younger generation, like, hey, can you help me take a picture of the family? It's okay to laugh, really, church, like, it's okay, all right. So family reunion, you're gonna have those three things. You're gonna have a fight, you're gonna have a meal, and you're gonna have advice. Well, today, as we come to our section of the book of Exodus that we're working through, we come to a family reunion and all three of these things are a part of their family reunion. So here's the outline of our text today. At this family reunion, which we find in Exodus chapter 17 and verses eight through 18, you're gonna have a fight to start out in 
chapter 17, 8 through 16. Then you'll find a meal that they'll have together in Exodus 18, 1 through 12. And then the end of the chapter, you'll have advice given in Exodus 18, 13 through 27. So let me remind you that this is the last part of the first section of the book of Exodus. So this is really the end of the leg of their journey from Egypt. From chapter 19 till chapter 40, you're going to have them at the whole time at Mount Sinai. So this is the last leg of their journey. This is the first part of the book, chapters 1 through 18, is the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt. And the 19 through 40 is where they hang out at Mount Sinai. You get the Ten Commandments. You get these instructions from God on how to live a life pleasing to the Lord. So we're finishing up this first part of the book of Exodus today. So chapter 17, verse 8, we find uh, this family reunion and it begins with a fight. It says this, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, Rephidim should remind you of last week's uh, message because the last test that God gave them was the no water test at Rephidim. That's chapter 17, verses one through eight. So many believe that these Amalekites were blocking the water. That's why they couldn't get water at this uh, section of, of, of their journey that they, they were at. And so the Amalekites come into play here because they not only cut off the water, but they attack the children of Israel. Now, let me give you a little background and why this is a family reunion in a way that ends in a fight is because the, the Amalekites trace their family tree back to Esau. So Amalek was the grandson of Esau. So the Amalekites are the descendants of Esau and the Israelites are descendants of Jacob. So when you hear Jacob and Esau, there should be some some wires going off that are taking you back to the book of Genesis. And remember in Genesis chapter 26, Esau gets really hungry And what does Jacob sell to Esau, or what does Esau sell to Jacob? His birthright. And when he sells him his birthright, this is how we get the the Amalekites and and the Israelites, is Jacob gets all the birthrights that rightfully belong to Esau. Well, when Esau finally gets some food in his belly and he realizes that that was a bad thing that he did, there becomes tension between Jacob and Esau. And so for the rest of Jacob and Esau's life, there's tension. And even beyond that, there is family tension between Jacob and Esau, between the Amalekites and the Israelites. We're going to find, though, that God is eventually going to wipe out the race of the Amalekites because he makes a promise that he's going to to do that later in the text. And we find that he eventually does that during the time of Esther. So these are the Amalekites that are coming to fight against Israel. Verse 9 says, so Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So we're introduced to a new character in the story. This guy's name is Joshua. Joshua is Moses's military leader. 
He really becomes Moses' right-hand man. Um, He will eventually be the one who will succeed Moses after Moses dies. But this is our first encounter with Joshua and we find that he's a military man and he's gonna gather an army um, so they can go fight the Amalekites. And Moses says that he's gonna go to the top of the hill with the staff of God in his hand. Now, let me give you some insight into this battle that goes on because later in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 17 and 18 Moses gives us insight to how this battle went down it says remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. So Moses later in Deuteronomy gives us insight that what happened is they're going out. The Amalekites see this opportunity to prey on people that are weak and worn out and tired. And so they go to battle with the Israelites and they begin to, from the back, begin to take, take them out. Well, again, obviously Moses sees this and like, we got to go to war with these guys. So Joshua gathers up some men and they're going to go to battle. And Moses is going to sit on this hill with the staff of God. And the story goes that he sits on the hill with the staff of God, watching the war take place. And the Bible says that when he would hold up the staff, they would win the war. So if you're watching the war take place, Moses holds it up, God is delivering them, they're winning the war. But as soon as Moses' arm and the staff would come down, they would start to lose the battle. I mean, you could watch, they could watch it taking place, right? The arm come down, they begin to lose the battle. So you can imagine Moses is in his 80s at this point and that he began to hold it up one hand at a time, right? And if you're 80 years old holding your hand, I mean, above your head is gonna be pretty, you can't do it for a long time, right? Like. Uh, it's gonna get tired. So what's interesting about the text is it starts out in the singular, like he held it up with one hand, then he would switch to the other hand and he would hold it up. But eventually his arms just got too tired and he couldn't hold it up. He he couldn't hold the stick stick of God up. And so he had taken with him Aaron and her, a couple of guys. And as they see this transpiring before their eyes, because you got to think, Joshua doesn't know it, right? We read ahead in the story and think, well, Joshua probably knew what, Joshua's fighting the battle. He doesn't know necessarily that if the stick's up in the air, that everything's good, right? And if it's not, then, it, then, then they're losing the war. He's just fighting the battle. So Aaron and her say, we've got to figure something out. So they take a stone and they put it under Moses and Moses sits down and Moses takes both hands on on this stick and they hold it up and Aaron and her stand beside him and hold his arms up. And as long as they're standing there holding him, his arms up and the stick of God is up, they win the war. And the Bible says that eventually they overwhelm the Amalekites and they win the war. Could Moses have done that on his own? No. He needed Aaron and her to be there with him to hold his arms up so that they could win the battle. He needed Joshua to fight the battle and he needed Aaron and her to be there with him to keep his arms up so they could continue to win the battle. 
And then in verse 15, you find Moses do, do, does this. He says, and Moses built an altar and he called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. So Moses, after they win the battle, which was common that they would build an altar and an altar was a way to show gratitude for God. It was a way for them to say thanks to God. And so he says, thanks to God through building an altar and he names the altar Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is my banner. Yahweh is my banner. What is this term banner? What is he talking about? Here's the word that was used. It is a military word and it has a military context where there was a signal pole, a banner around which an army or army unit can rally, regroup and return for instructions. So as Moses is holding up his hands, it is like a banner that they could rally around. And so Moses, as he's thinking through the war and what God has done, he's thinking the Lord Yahweh is my banner, that he is the one we rally around. He is the one that we regroup at. He is the one where we get instruction. So as they're fighting the war and they look and they see Moses's arms up, although they may not know what's going on, they do know that they've seen Moses use the staff of God. And that the staff of God represented the power and the presence and the promises of God. So as Moses is holding the staff up, they know that God is going to be faithful to them. He is their banner. He is their rallying point. Because they had seen God use that same stick to go across the Red Sea on dry ground. They had seen God use that same stick in the hand of Moses to bring judgment on the Egyptian armies as they were coming after him as the water came down and killed the enemy of God. They had seen God just earlier in chapter 17 use that same stick to strike the rock so that they could have water. They knew what he was saying when he would say the Lord is my banner, that they knew the promises and the power of God. And as he held up that stick, they knew that the Lord was their banner. That was the rallying cry. Yahweh was faithful to who he is. Then you go on from the fight to the meal. And in Exodus chapter 18, it says that Jethro, Jethro, not Jethro, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he'd sent her home, along with her two sons. So we pick up that there's this family reunion that's about to happen, a physical family reunion that Jethro is gonna bring Moses' wife and his two kids to meet up with him. Now, when did Jethro, when did Moses' wife and kids leave Moses? Well, if you remember back to Exodus chapter four, there's that interesting story about Zipporah cutting off the foreskin of her son and throwing it at Moses. Remember that story back in Exodus chapter four? Many believe that that was the moment that Moses sent his wife and his kids back with Jethro as he was gonna go lead the children of Israel out of battle or, or out of Egypt. 
So that could be one instance. Some believe that maybe as they were exiting Egypt, he sent them away because he knew it was going to be a long journey. So go spend time with your father, with your father and, 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 and your people there while we're coming out. And once we get out, we'll get back together. So either way, the idea is that they're, they're having a family reunion. And so Jethro's bringing Moses' wife and his two kids to meet up with him. And if you're a son-in-law, I want you to listen to this next verse. It's a good way to meet your father-in-law next time you see him. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law in in verse 7 and bowed down and kissed him. And all the father-in-law said, amen, in the room. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent, right? So... If you have a father-in-law, I'd encourage you next time you see him, bow down, give him a kiss. Um, maybe just bow down is a good enough kiss, maybe too far, but just bow down before him, it's a good way. But if it shows the honor that Moses had for his father-in-law. Then in verse eight, it says this, then the Lord, then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So as Moses sits down with his father-in-law, we would assume other people would be present family members. Moses shares all that God has done. They just have a long talk. And Moses begins to walk through all the things that he's seen God do. He walks through the 10 plagues. He walks through the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. He walks through the bitter water and the the food that that they didn't have that God provided. He, He walks through the no water and how God provided water from a rock. Moses shares all that God has, has done. And I love that it says in the text that he didn't just share the good stuff but he shared the hardships as well. That he didn't hide that it was, wasn't difficult, that it, was, it wasn't an easy exit, but that it was difficult to leave and, and, and all the complaining and all the, the, the hard parts of leaving Egypt. He, he didn't hide that. See, sharing God with others, we don't hide the mess because the mess is what makes God so glorious, right? The, the sin in our life that God has rescued us from is what makes God so glorious. And so I love that as Moses is talking with his father-in-law, that he's not just sharing all the things that God delivered them from, but he also shares the hardships as well. But there's a really cool thing that happens in this text that to the English translation, we don't catch. But if we look at it in the Hebrew in which it was written, we have this word right here called told. So we just read that like Moses sat down and he shared God with his father-in-law. But if you go back to Exodus chapter nine, and in Exodus chapter nine, in verse 16, Moses records for us, us the seventh plague of hail. And he says that God says this, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name, this is God speaking, may be proclaimed in all the earth. Here's the really cool thing. This word told, 
Moses told his father-in-law all that he'd done is the same word where God says, proclaimed in all the earth. So Moses is making the connection for us that when God was going through the plagues and he says that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth, that this was God's promise being fulfilled as Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. Was his father-in-law a part of the children of Israel? No, his father-in-law was from Midianite. He was a Gentile is how we would use the terminology today. He was, he was outside of the family of God and his, God's name is being proclaimed in all the earth, even to the Midianites, Moses' father-in-law. So look what happens in verses 10 through 12 after Moses proclaims, tells his father-in-law all that God has done. Jethro says, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered, you, delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. So at this moment, we see the conversion of Jethro. Jethro is now a part of the family of God because he says, I know that there, that the Lord is greater than all other gods. This is an incredible moment in the life of Moses, in the life of the Exodus. Jethro, a man who is outside of the children of Israel, is now a part of the family of God because he says, I know that the Lord is above every God. In verse 12, we see it even more. It says, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices it to God. What he's saying in this moment is, I believe that Yahweh is the true God and I'm sacrificing this offering as a forgiveness for my sins because I believe that he is the true and living God. And then it says, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel and look at what they did. They eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. They have a family reunion around the table. They eat bread together. See, this began as a physical, a physical family reunion and it ends as a spiritual family reunion. That now Jethro is a part of the family of God. So you have a fight, you have a meal, and then the last section, you have advice. So what happens is, Jethro hangs out for a while after this moment. And like any good father-in-law, he's watching with a critical eye to Moses, right? His son-in-law. And he's seeing how Moses is living his life. And the Bible says that from sun up to sundown, Moses had people coming to him over and over and over. Like all day, all night, like till he would go to bed, people were coming to him for counsel, for advice. The idea is that Moses was the president, the lawyer, the judge, the police officer, the counselor, right? Moses was trying to do it all. And so in Exodus chapter 18 and verse 17, Jethro comes to Moses and says this, what you're doing is not good. <laughs> Thanks, dad, right? <laughs> like, thank, you're such a good father-in-law. But he does. He points out to him, like, listen, you're gonna burn yourself out. 
You got two million people here that you're leading and you're trying to take care of little family disputes like she took my car or I took hers, you know, that kind of thing. You can't deal with that stuff. You've got too much going. So what you're doing is not good. And so Jethro gives him advice and says, here's what I think you should do. I think you should break down the children of Israel into different units, like thousands, hundreds, tens, that, that kind of idea. And then put men up who can lead over them. So they can go to these smaller groups is the idea. They go to them and they'll deal with that. Then they go to another level and they go to another level. And then if they come to you, then it's really a serious situation. And so look at how Moses responds to his father-in-law in in verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. What a good son-in-law. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands and of hundreds and of fifties and of tens. I love the humility of Moses. I mean, think about this guy. Think about all that he has seen God do. And his father-in-law Jethro, who just became a part of the family of God, comes to him and has advice for him. Moses could have said, do you know who I am? Like, we just talked about this. Like, this staff in my hand, when God uses it, it like does incredible things, right? Like parts waters, millions of people cross, it brings judgment, right? Hit a rock, water comes out. Like Moses, of all the guys, Moses could have been prideful and just said, listen, thanks for the advice, but I can man up and I can do this, right? But Moses has the humility to listen to his father-in-law and say, you know what? I'm going to do what my father-in-law tells me to do. So this family reunion, you have a fight, you have a meal, and you have advice. Now, how do we bring this down to Antioch Bible Baptist Church, December the 5th, 2021, and bring application to our lives? Well, the Bible says this in John 1, 12. It says, to all who receive Jesus and believe in his name, they become children of God. John puts it really simply for us. If you want to be a part of the family of God, You have to believe that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again, conquering death and the devil and sin. And you have to receive it. And that is the idea to take it for yourself. So the point is my parents can't receive and believe in Jesus for me. The point is my grandparents can't believe and receive in Jesus for me, that I have to receive it. I have to take Jesus for myself. And so really before I move beyond this, I wanna ask you, are you a child of God? Has there been a moment in your life where you believed that Jesus died for you, that he was buried and that he rose again and you received him, you by faith took him as the Lord and savior of your life? If there's not been a moment that you've done that, I would encourage you right today, right where you're sitting, you can believe in Jesus. You can receive him and take him for yourself. You don't need me to do anything for you. You don't need your parents to do anything for you. You don't need a spiritual leader to do anything for you. You right where you're sitting can say yes to Jesus. You can believe that he did that for you and say, Jesus, come and take ownership of my life. And the Bible says in that moment, 
we become a part of the family of God. Then in Ephesians chapter two, Paul continues to build on this idea of being a part of the family of God. In Ephesians chapter two and verse 19, he says, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but now we are citizens of heaven and we're members of the household of God. So Paul takes it and says, now we're not just in the family of God. The family of God is this this body of believers, the church how we refer to it today, that we're a part of, we're no longer aliens and foreigners, we're a part of the citizenships known as the church, being a part of the the family of God. So in our lives, I think we can look back at Exodus 17 and 18 and say, as being a part of the family of God, what are some observations that we can have about our church family, specifically Antioch Bible Baptist Church? What are things that we can learn from the text about our family that we need to learn from the Moses and the Israelites? The first one I would say is this, sharing Jesus is a must. When Moses gets together with Jethro, what does he do? He shares all that God has done for him. He lives out Psalms 96 that says, declares glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all people. Moses declares the glory of God. Moses shares Yahweh with his father-in-law. We as the church family should share Jesus with others. In Acts chapter four, when you're watching the early church take off and God is multiplying it in in incredible ways, there's a story in in Acts chapter four about Peter and and, and James and they are are in in prison and they get out of prison and they tell them when they, they leave to not talk about Jesus. And Peter and John, I think I said James, Peter and John said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter and John said, we're so moved by what God, what Jesus has done that we can't help but speak about him. This should be all of us as followers of Jesus Christ. We should be so moved by what God has done in our lives that we can't help but share Jesus. That it's like, I I can't be quiet about him. He's changed my life and I've got to share him with with others. There's a story of a a, a baseball player turned evangelist. His name was Billy Sunday. This was the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. And God saved him and he began to uh, preach the gospel around, uh, around America and, and the world. And one of the things that he was known for was sort of his antics of like he would slide across the stage and he would stand on things. So he was real, uh, out, you know, outward like a, a draw. But he tells the story that when he, became a believer. The night he became a believer, there was a man who was dealing with him. And as the man saw that he had become a follower of Jesus Christ, he said to him, there's, there's three things that I think you need to do in order to not have the word backslider ever behind your name. And he said this, 
First, you need to talk to God every day for 15 minutes. Then he said, you need to let God talk to you, aka read the Bible for 15 minutes. And then he said, you need to talk to someone else about God every day for 15 minutes. He said, if you do those three things, you'll not ever become a backslider. And I thought, isn't that a challenge for us? Like we talk a lot about reading the Bible and we talk a lot about praying, but maybe we need to challenge ourselves to talk with others about Jesus. Because I would ask you this, who's the last person you talked to about Jesus? Start thinking through that and it's like, maybe it has been a while. But I think if God has set a fire in our heart through the person of Jesus, it ought to just come out of us. And, and can, can I just encourage you, start at your home. Like I'm not talking about necessarily going and knocking on doors and, and having those awkward conversations or, you know, like you've got to every day go find a way to talk to somebody and, and be real awkward about it. Just start at the dinner table. And just talk to your family about the difference that Jesus made in your life through the time that you spent in the word in prayer. Like, let's start at home. Let, let's start in our marriages talking about Jesus. And I think if we begin to share Jesus there, then it will begin to work itself out into our workplaces, into our schools, into our communities. Why? Because we talk about him at home, so I'm not gonna go put on a face. I'm gonna talk about him at home and eventually I'm gonna start talking to him about him at my workplace and other arenas that God puts me in because sharing Jesus is a must. Being a part of the family of God, we should just want to talk about the one who has delivered us. So sharing Jesus is a must. The second thing that I observe about church family is that community is essential. Community is essential. How does Moses hold up his arms? Aaron and her. How does Moses win the battle? Joshua and his army. How does Moses not burn himself out? Jethro had the courage to say, it's not gonna work out well. God brought men into Moses' life that he could set up as leaders, right? Community is essential. The reality today is we need each other. I need you. And you need me. Hebrews 10, verse 24 says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. We need each other encouraging each other. In Hebrews chapter three, it talks about that we need each other so that we don't become hardened by sin in our life. I need people like Jethro who are gonna speak the truth to me. And where do I find that? Here, in a place where I'm loved unconditionally, in a place where grace is given and mercy is found. This is a place where I should be able, people should be able to say to me, you need to grow in this area of your life. 
I see this area where you're burning yourself out and I wanna step in and help you in that area. And you can hold arms up of each other. Community is essential, church. Listen, I'm glad if you're a part of a Christian school community. I'm glad if you're a part of a homeschool community or a public school community or a college community or a gym community. But there should be no other essential community in your life other than the church. We need each other. See, the difference between understanding that community is an add-on and community is essential is this. When I say I go to church there versus saying they are my family. If I go to church there, it's just a reference point. Right? It's like me saying I graduated from Oak Park High School. That's just a reference point. But if I say that's my family, that totally changes the dynamic of how this works. Yesterday, we, Ruth and I had breakfast with a couple from our church. And one of the things that just brings me joy in my heart is when I hear people in our church say, we love Antioch and it is our family. We can't imagine being anywhere else because this is our family. Do you see the difference between that perspective and I go to church there? It just doesn't become an add-on. It becomes a essential piece of my life. And I think we see this, that community was essential to the children of Israel. They couldn't have done what God was doing in that moment without each other. And so my question for you is this, do you see Antioch as a point of reference or your family? Do you see the people that you're sitting next to as just, oh, we go to the same church? Or do you see them as like, this is my family? These are my people with all their bumps and bruises and scars and weirdness. This is my family. Community is essential. The last thing that I see for our community as a church is that Jesus is our banner. Moses made an altar in gratitude to God and he named the altar Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner, reminding them that Yahweh was the rallying point, that Yahweh was where they regrouped. As you and I go out from this place to war, we look to Jesus as our banner. He is the one we rally around. He is the one where we regroup. He is the one who instructs us in following him. Here's how the author of Hebrew puts it in Hebrews chapter 1, 12 in verse 2. He says in verse 1 that there's this race that we're running on. And then in verse 2 he says this, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So the author of Hebrews says, how do we keep going in our race? We raise Jesus as our banner. He is the one that we are looking at. He is the one that we rally around. He is the one that all of our hope is in. He is the one that we look to when we need to regroup. He is the one that we look to when we need instructions. Jesus is our banner. If we're gonna do this church family thing right, we have to keep Jesus as the banner. So my question for you is, have you made something else other than Jesus the banner for our church family? 
Have you made something other than Jesus the banner for our church family, the reason that you're a part of this family? I've heard these things before. I go to church at Antioch because they have a great Awana program. I go to church at Antioch because they have really good worship. Good job, Clint. I go to Antioch because they are welcoming. I go to Antioch because the former senior pastor was a really good preacher. And although all of these statements are good, we don't want to lift them up above Jesus Christ. Jesus is our banner. Thankful for a great Awana program. Thankful for a great worship ministry, student ministry, kids ministry. Thankful for the great pastors that God has blessed our church with. But none of, that's not, we're not going to raise them. Jesus is our banner. Jesus is our rallying point. Jesus is why we gather. Jesus is why we do everything at Antioch. So if it's welcoming, it's because of Jesus. If we sing really well, it's because of Jesus. If you're moved by the word, it's because of Jesus. He is the banner. He is the one that we lift up, that we should be drawn to. Jesus is the banner of our church. You see, at a family reunion, you have a lot of different names there, right? Like if I go to the Lyles family, that's my wife's maiden name. If I go to the Lyles family reunion, there's a lot more names than just Lyles there, right? Ruth married a Doss, so you're gonna have a Doss family there. You're gonna have a Day family there. You're gonna have a Garrison family there. And then Ruth's dad has a sister, so you're gonna have a Walker family there. And so we go to these family reunions and the reality is we're not there because of our name, we're there for one name. And although our names all may be different, we're there for one name, the Lyles family. And every Sunday that we gather, we gather around one name. And it's not Steve Doss, it's not Bob Bear, it's not Todd Slagle, it's not Marcus Mackey, it's not Clint Stevens. We gather around one name and the name is Jesus Christ. That's why we do this. See, the reality is this, when we gather every Sunday, what we're doing is we're having a family reunion. We don't have all the same names in this group. We're not, we don't all have the same color of skin. We don't all have the same necessarily political ideas. We don't have all the same views about cultural things, but we gather around one name and the name is Jesus Christ. And here's the neat thing. When we gather, we're pointing to something that has not yet happened. And in Revelation chapter 19, it says that someone from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather with Jesus in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will gather for that family reunion one day and we'll gather around one name. And there'll be people from all over this globe that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we will gather on that day to celebrate one name, to eat and celebrate one name and the name is Jesus. And every Sunday we get a glimpse of that day. 
every Sunday that we sit in here together and we sing the worship of God and we take communion together and we hear the word, we're getting a little insight into that day when we'll all sit together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in Exodus chapter 18, we get a small glimpse when Moses and Jethro and the elders sit down together and have a meal after his conversion. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in you that someday we will sit down with you and have a meal. And every Sunday when we gather like this, when we gather in our groups and in our classes, we're picturing what is to come because you are the banner that we hold up. You are the reason that we gather. So I pray, Lord, that we would see our church family not as an add-on to our lives, but essential to our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would see the importance of having a fire in our souls that like Peter and John, we can say we can't help but speak about the things that we have seen and heard. I pray that you would light a fire in our church that that would be true in our homes, that would be true in our workplaces, that would be true in our communities and our colleges and our schools in this area, that it's it, as followers of you, as a part of this body of believers, we can't help but speak because you're changing our lives you're with us in the valleys. You're with us on the mountaintops. You're worthy of our praise. Thank you, Lord, for the gift to gather together today. I pray that you would motivate us by your grace this week to live in a way that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.